0: Morning, uh, this morning's reading is Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth they tell you, there were, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Matt. We normally have that printed out, and we didn't, and Matt had to find the passage real quick. You where Luke is? Luckily, it wasn't Nahum or something like that, sweating. <laughs> um, great, um, I used to be in a band, and uh, it's much cooler before, um, <laughs> everyone's like, what? Um, but I used to be in this band, and we, got, we had this opportunity to go on tour with a pretty famous uh, Northern Irish band, and what was really interesting, a lot of interesting things about that experience, but um, it's interesting to see... Um, someone really famous and their, their reception in different cities around the UK. It was really interesting to see what their reception was of coming home. Um, and I can only imagine that there's a unique experience of being famous when your hometown is, when you're from Northern Ireland, because there's an element of being famous here where you come home and we're proud of you, but also like kind of wind your neck in a little bit. Like we know who you are, like you're not... Um, today's story has an element of that. Um, I'll just tell you what the, the the big idea, the thesis of this sermon is. Uh, it's beware of being so familiar with Jesus that you miss out on who He is and on the opportunity of being His. Beware of being so familiar with Jesus that you miss out on who He actually is and on the opportunity of being His. Um, Luke uses, we're in chapter 4, uses verses 14 and 15 really as, a, as just a way to transition us from uh, looking at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, in the desert, uh, and then Jesus' time preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. So uh, read those again, verse 14 and 15 says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So, there's this period of time uh, between verse 13 and verse 16 that Luke just decides not to give us all the details of. Um, We we don't know exactly where Jesus traveled to between the wilderness and and Nazareth. We don't know exactly all that he did um, or the amount of time that's passed exactly. Um, We we can conclude it was a considerable amount of time, most scholars believe it was probably up to a full year between his time in the wilderness and his time here in Nazareth. Um, We we also know he definitely spent a a considerable amount of time in Capernaum. We know that because in verse 23 it references back to things that he had done in Capernaum. Uh, But the main thing that I think Luke wants us to see from that little transition period is that Jesus has become quite famous. And he's become this, this renowned rabbi. He's, he's this teacher that, that the people in the surrounding area of Galilee are really excited about. Um, he's, he's, he's kind of on tour. He's on his way, making around to these synagogues teaching. And this report about this, this rabbi who's saying amazing things. He's doing uh, amazing things. He's working in the power of the Spirit. This report's spreading through the country. These rumors are spreading about this man, this, this teacher who's, who's doing and saying spectacular things. And these rumors have spread back to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Um, that, that's what we know from Luke's account of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's, he's become a celebrity of some sorts. He's, he's, he's been glorified by all. Now, we know that that's not, this, this glorification from the people, it's not the kind of praise that comes with true worship. He's just, he, he, he's famous, he, he's popular, and people are enamored by the, these, these rumors of, of what he is saying and what he is doing. On, on a, on a popu- popular level, Jesus is, is really hot right now, um, but they don't really know who he is exactly. And, and, and knowing who someone is is extremely important to offering them true worship. Uh, but Luke quickly takes, he wants our attention to be on this scene in Nazareth. Because in this incident, the mission of Jesus is clearly revealed. So remember that there's 24 chapters in Luke's gospel. It's the longest of the gospels. He only spends the first three of those chapters on the first 30 years of Jesus' life. And then he spends the next 21 chapters detailing three, the final three years uh, of, of his life here on earth. So the, 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 the majority of Luke's gospel is on the ministry of Jesus. Um, and so, I think that's why he wants to take us to Nazareth, because here we're given this outline of the mission of Jesus. We get the, the, the job description of the Messiah. So, remember that question we should be asking ourselves as we read the text. What does this tell us about who Jesus is? Well, here it is. This text tells us uh, who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Um, pray for us one more time really quickly, and we'll look at the text. Um, uh, Father, we just pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see. We pray that we would, we would see Jesus uh, really clearly this morning. Um, I pray that for those who have been long followers of Jesus, I pray for those who are just kind of uh, dipping their toe in the water a little bit. Um, show us Jesus clearly this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, verse 16, Jesus has come to Galilee in the power of the spirit. He's, he's making his way through the countryside. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's performing miracles. He's doing spectacular things. And this report about him is spreading through the country. This, this report has reached his hometown. And in verse 16, Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth. This hometown boy, he's been away for a little while. And they've heard rumors of, of who he's become. And here he is coming back into town. And Luke tells us that as was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So what's the synagogue? The synagogue is it's, it's the assembly of God's people. It's, it's the place where uh, worshipers come together to meet. Um, in some context in the, in, the, in the New Testament, it can refer to a Christian uh, assembly. That, that's what the word church means. I said that uh, ecclesia means the assembly of God's people. But this is a Jewish uh, congregation. But do you see Jesus? It shows us his faithful attendance to the synagogue. Um, he, 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 Jesus was a churchgoer. Jesus, it was important to him to be with God's people when they gathered for worship. So just as a wee side point, if you think that you can, uh, you, you can kind of know God without needing to be with his people, Jesus, let I me mean, gently remind you, Jesus would, would disagree with you. Like it was important for Jesus to, to gather with God's people. It was necessary for Jesus to do that. How much more so is it for us? Um, the Sabbath day is when the Jewish people would gather together in the synagogue, and so if it was the Sabbath day, you knew where to find Jesus. He'd be in the synagogue. And um, on this particular day, although he's this hometown boy that's returned, and he's in his hometown synagogue, um, he's also now a visiting quite famous uh, teacher, a rabbi. So. As was the custom of the synagogues, often a, a visiting rabbi would be invited to do the reading and to, to, to give the sermon. So a, a typical synagogue gathering would have some prayers, it'd have some songs, it'd have the reading of the scripture, and then a teacher would exposit the text. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, and, and Jesus was invited to do just that. So uh, Luke tells us he stood up to read, he's given the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. They didn't have books, his Bible wasn't like ours, it was, each, was, each was in a scroll, it was kept in this Torah ark, and um, they didn't have chapters or verse numbers, It's just one long text, and Jesus was handed Isaiah, same one in your Bible, and he slowly begins to unroll this scroll, probably would have taken him a long time to, to reach nearly to the bottom. Um, he, he purposefully, Luke says he found the place where it was written, so he's, he's intentional here, he's choosing this passage to, to expose it. And, He unrolls it nearly to the end, to chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, and he reads this passage, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor a little bit of background about that text, Isaiah 61, it prophesies, that it foretells this Messiah who would be sent by God to deliver salvation to his people. This is the Messiah that they've been waiting on for generation after generation. Um, and the text, it tells us what the Messiah would, would do when he would come. It's this job description of the Messiah. He'd, he'd come and he'd proclaim good news to the poor. He'd proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, and uh, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, some people interpret that as, as purely social and political. So Jesus was this, this, this social revolutionary, and they, and they kind of point to the implications of the church to alleviate the people from their poverty and their imprisonment. Some people, on the other hand, think he's speaking purely of, in spiritual terms here. They kind of, kind of lean more heavily onto that. I think he, he clearly means both. Um, he, he's, he's speaking in, in both physical and spiritual poverty and blindness and oppression. Um, if just read the Gospels and you see that must be true because Jesus as the Messiah, he goes and seeks out those people, doesn't he? He goes to the poor, he, he goes to the hungry, he gives physical slight to sight to the blind. He aligns himself with the poor, with the marginalized, with the oppressed. Like Jesus is for those people. You get to the, the book of Revelation and you see when Jesus returns again to, to bring the fullness of God's kingdom on earth, he does away with all those things, doesn't he? There is no more sickness, there is no poverty, there's no more imprisonment, there's no more oppression, there's no more tears. That's Jesus' goal, he comes for the renewal of the earth. But what does the earth need renewing from? What's the problem? Well, Genesis 3 tells us the problem is sin. Like all, of the, all of the sickness, all of the poverty, all the oppression, it's, the, its cause is sin. Sin is the, the, the root problem here. And so Jesus, the Messiah, he, he comes to undo all the effects of the sin, but he does that by going straight to the root of the problem. He, he was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, not just the, those who are in, in physical poverty, but those who are poor in spirit, those who are numbered with the brokenhearted, Those who are poverty-stricken spiritually, that was the center of the task of the Messiah that was promised by God. He would come to console the brokenhearted. Remember what Simeon said. He was waiting on what? The the consolation of Israel. He's waiting on on the comforter of God to come and, and comfort his people. The Messiah came to proclaim liberty, not just to those who are enslaved in physical chains, but to those who are held captive by Satan himself. Those who are in bondage to sin, slaves to the power of evil. And that's everyone. Like you can be, you can be the richest person in the world and still be completely blind to the truth, can't you? You can still be in complete poverty spiritually. And the Messiah has come to set those people free. He's speaking both physically and spiritually here. You see how that text, it it, kind of shows us the effects of sin in our lives that each and every one of us feel. Like, have you ever felt just impoverished by the sin in your life? Just empty? Have you ever felt just in chains to your sin? Like, no matter how hard you try, you can't help but sin? You see how sin blinds us to the truth? And this text that Jesus read, it's showing us what the Messiah would do when he came. It's, it's the Messiah speaking. And Jesus reads the text. And then he rolls the scroll back up. He gives it to the attendant and he sits down. And Luke tells us that all the eyes of the synagogue were on him. You, you see the, the, the drama that, that Luke is presenting us with here? Like this was an incredibly important scripture about the coming Messiah, what he would do for his people, and now they're thinking, what's he gonna say? And Jesus opens his mouth, and he he gives the shortest sermon that's recorded in the Bible, like a one-sentence sermon. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's his sermon, that's how he, (laughs) it's his mic drop. It's a single sentence. What a powerful sermon it is, though. Every single word carefully chosen, dynamic, full of meaning. Like today, he says, not in Isaiah's day, not someday in the future, today, right now. In, in your hearing, as you are listening, he's saying right in front of you, in my very presence, with my words, this scripture, this, this announcement of salvation promised by God so long ago. This salvation that you've been waiting on for, for generations. He says, today in your hearing, it has been fulfilled. It, it has been completed. It has been brought to pass. It has come true. What a, se- what a sentence. With that one sentence, Jesus proclaims that he is the Messiah who has come to bring salvation to God's people. He says, this text you are so familiar with, this text that you've been waiting on for so long to come true, it's about me. He's saying, I am the anointed one who has come. What a claim. What, what a proclamation. And for us readers of Luke's gospel, like we've been, we kind of get the whole thing laid out in front of us. It seems obvious, right? Like he's made it clear as day. Jesus, he said to Mary, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. You saw that last week at at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descending on him. He says it in verse 14. He comes to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So for us, when he begins to read that text about that Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, we're like, like, you know that Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he's like holding his drink he's pointing at the, t- uh, it's like that's that's he's that's it's Jesus, that's that's what he's talking about there. It's obvious. Even that word Christ, the the word Christ, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament word Messiah, and it literally means the Anointed One. Jesus Christ, the anointed one. He's been anointed with the power of the sovereign God. Anointed to do what? To proclaim the good news. The the Messiah was anointed by the Spirit of God to come and preach. That was his primary purpose. He he comes to give sight to the blind. He comes to set the captives free. He comes to, to liberate the oppressed. Yes, but how does he do that? By preaching. The, the anointed Messiah, he preaches, he proclaims the good news. He comes and uh, announces the arrival of God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, that text is about me. I, I'm the one who comes with the power of God to proclaim good news to you in your poverty, to you in your, your blindness, to you in your oppression, and your captivity. Verse 19 would have been so special for them to hear. He comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's referring to the year of Jubilee, um, which was for the, for the people of Israel, it was every 50 years when all their debts were canceled and every slave and, and every uh, servant was, was set free. Happened every 50 years, um, essentially once in every person's lifetime and that year was essentially a resetting of all of your debts. Anyone Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? I'd love that. Just slate wiped clean. A resetting of your freedom. And the purpose of that year of Jubilee was just, it's a, it's a foreshadow of what the Messiah would come and do. When the Messiah would come and, and cancel your debts permanently, he would give you freedom permanently. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who comes to cancel your debts permanently. I have the one who comes to give you freedom permanently. Like, what glorious news, right? This is what the people of Israel have been waiting on for generations and generations. And he's saying, today's the day. I'm here right in front of you. You'd expect some hallelujahs at this point in that synagogue, right? You'd expect the crowds to to at least rush on to him and embrace him. But look at how they respond. Verse 22 tells us, all spoke well of him and marveled or wondered at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? That's an interesting response, isn't it? Like I read that, when the first time I read that, I thought, I don't know what their response is. It seems positive at first, doesn't it? They spoke well of him. It's positive, everyone wants to be spoken well of. It seems they seems they, they're respecting what he said. They marveled at his words, which is positive. It's this astonishment. It's this wonder at what he's just said. It's not that they don't understand what he just said, and there's other times when Jesus says something and they don't get it. This isn't one of those times he's made it crystal clear he is the, this, this claim that he is this long-awaited Messiah. So they marveled. But what did they marvel at? Not at him, not at his, his presence, just at his words. They marveled at his claim. And then they start whispering to each other, like, this is amazing, but isn't this Joseph's son? You see, they, they knew Jesus, This is the Jesus who grew up down the street. This is Joseph's son, the builder. He's probably been in some of their homes to fix a door that was creaky or wouldn't shut properly. They were so familiar with him, but they've heard some amazing rumors about him lately, about him saying and doing some incredible things. So they're, hmm. This was their response. They're smiling. They're speaking well of him but this is Joseph's son. You see, they they enjoyed the sermon, but they didn't see the Savior. They they think Jesus is a nice preacher, but the problem is they're too familiar with him. All they see is Joseph's son. They completely miss the the amazing fulfillment of the scripture, and all they see is a, a hometown boy who is made good. On the surface, there seems to be a positive response, but underneath there's disbelief. And it's like that sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes, like, the truth is hidden in plain sight. Sometimes the familiar hides the fantastic. That's why most car accidents happen very close to the driver's home. You get close to home and you just stop paying attention. Everything should just be as it normally is. Familiarity is why most household accidents happen in the bathroom. You're just so blasé, you're so familiar that people don't see the wet floor. Familiarity is why a lot of people don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior. They're comfortable with him, they're familiar with him. Maybe they're churchgoers like these people, they've, they've heard all of the, the stories. They, they've had just enough Bible to think they know enough so they're not looking any deeper. They know all the Sunday school stories. They, they come to church occasionally. Maybe they come to church quite often. They're familiar, but they don't see. And um, friends, beware of being so familiar with Jesus that you don't see him for who he really is. You must look harder. You actually, the, the deeper you look at him, the deeper you'll see he is. That's why Paul says in Romans 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unreachable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? The, the depths of his riches and wisdom and knowledge, he says, are infinitely deep. You, you'll never reach the bottom of knowing who he is, yet that's our goal as believers is to to know him is our every goal. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3, I love this, he says that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend what is the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and listen to this, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's this idea of knowing, the unknowable in Christ, because he's impossible to to fully know. Yet it's our goal, knowing Jesus fully and deeper and deeper. It should be the number one goal of each of us every single day. And beware of thinking that you've got him figured out. You know who he is. He's Joseph's son. Beware of being so familiar with Jesus that you completely miss out on who he really is. How much does that speak into our specific like Northern Irish Christian culture? Like everyone knows Jesus. Everyone's been to church. Everyone's familiar with him. We've all heard the stories. Friends, I think this text tells us it's it's entirely possible to be so familiar with Jesus, and still not recognize him for who he really is. You can be like these people who enjoyed the sermon, but they didn't see the Savior. This isn't this Joseph's son. And in verse 23, Jesus being his divine self, he sees their unbelief. You see, Jesus sees them, even though they don't see him. He knows that they don't fully believe, and in verse 23, he anticipates what they will say to him. And he says to the crowd, "Dartless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Did you catch that? They're, they're thinking, prove it. Like if you are the Messiah, prove it. Do something spectacular. Can't help to think back to the temptation in the wilderness. That's the same temptation that Satan gave Jesus. If you are the son of God, do something. Can't help but to think forward to that moment when he's hanging on the cross and the religious leaders mockingly say, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the real Messiah. It's almost like Jesus is saying... There's a day coming when you're going to tell me this. But right now, what they wanted him to do in Nazareth, his hometown, is what he did in Capernaum. They want him to put Nazareth first, the minister here. They want him to prove himself by working miracles and, and putting them first. You see, their, their response is pride and unbelief. It's a response of self-importance and entitlement. They believe themselves to be the insiders. Like, Jesus, we know you. You, you grew up in our midst. You owe us this. Do, you, do your spectacular things here. And in verse 24, Jesus, he finds no honor in their response. They're not going to honor him here. And familiarity breeds contempt. To them, he's always just going to be Joseph's son. Like, he might be a fantastic teacher now. He might maybe do spectacular things, but he's just Joseph's son. They're right, he is Joseph's son, but he's also God's son. They're missing something there. He, he's the Messiah. Do you see how they're, they're not saying anything untrue about him? They're half-honoring him by speaking truth about him, but they fail to see how they're actually dishonoring Jesus. It's dishonoring to him to call him something less than he really is. Like Muslims, they honor Jesus by worshiping him as, uh, uh, by uh, honoring him as, as, a, as a great prophet, but they deny him, they dishonor him by denying that he is the son of God. Hindus honor Jesus by worshiping him as one of a thousand gods, but they, they dishonor him by not seeing that he is the one true God and that the others are false idols. And some people think they honor Jesus by saying he's a great moral teacher, but they dishonor him by refusing to see him as the savior of the world. So in verse 15, there is, there's kind of this glorification of him. But you can't do that if you don't fully see who he is. You see, to truly honor and worship Jesus, you have to receive him as he really is as the Messiah and the Son of God, who alone rescues sinners from God's wrath, and he makes those same sinners righteous in God's sight. You see, there's a difference, it's not really about accepting Jesus, it's about receiving Jesus. We often use that phrase, I've accepted Jesus as my savior. It doesn't really matter if you've accepted him, what matters is if he's accepted you. You see, I'm trying to. The the better way to put it is: Have you received Jesus? You see the difference in accepting, receiving Jesus. It's not exactly the same as accepting him. Accepting someone is to tolerate them. It's to kind of like you're you're welcome here. That's different from receiving them. Receiving someone is to embrace them for who they really are. And the people in his hometown, they're not receiving him for who he really is. And Jesus sees, and he knows it in their heart. He knows what they're thinking. Do something if you're the Messiah. This is your hometown. And look at Jesus' response to them. Verse 24, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. And then he quickly gives them two stories that they would have known from the Old Testament to illustrate that point. Verse 25 says, he says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. He's saying, you remember that story? And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. That's the first story. Verse, the second story is verse 27, and he says, and there were many, pro, many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. We don't have time to unpack those stories completely, but all you need to know is Elijah and Elisha were were prophets from God, and in both of those stories, neither of them were sent to, to help God's people, Israel. They were sent to the outsiders, Gentiles. Sidon and Syria were Gentile lands. And Jesus is saying, just like Elisha and Elijah were rejected by Israel, so you are rejecting me. And he's saying the result of both of those stories, that God's salvation passes over Israel and goes to the Gentiles instead, the outsiders, that's what's going to happen to you because you aren't receiving me for who I really am. Listen, when it comes to the Old Testament, when it comes to Abraham and his descendants as God's chosen people, it was always God's intention to to bring in the outsiders. God's intention was always to save people from every nation, from every ethnic group, every language group, not just Israel, okay? Remember, Paul explains to the Romans that the Gentiles have been grafted into God's salvation because the Israelites have been broken off. That's, That's what Jesus is preaching here that Israel is being cut off because they are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, but the Gentiles are being brought in. He's saying God's salvation is for all people now. It's for, it's for all nations. It's for everyone who will receive me as their Lord and God. And these hometown Nazarenes, they aren't receiving him. So he'll go to others who will be brought in. It's an incredibly offensive message to them. These, these self-important, entitled people in the synagogue are offended. Friends, where are you in this story? Perhaps you've been brought up in church like these people have, were raised in the synagogue. And we can know the language of the church, we, we can know the culture and the rituals of the church, but still not know Jesus. I think this Jesus sermon, it's aimed at nominal believers, people who assume they are God's people. They, they assume they're the, the insiders, but there's no living proof of that in their lives. There's no saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's no true acceptance for who he really is. There's no fruit of it in their lives. And the Lord's application to them and to us is you can completely miss out on God's salvation if you fail to recognize Jesus. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, he says that terrifying thing. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. We never knew each other. You can miss God's salvation if you fail to recognize and receive Jesus for who he really is. Last week, Alan said, there's this spectrum, isn't there? There's some on this far end of the pendulum who think there's such big failures that God could surely never save them. But here, Jesus is speaking to the people on the other end of that pendulum, people who say, I'm not that bad. Like, I go to church. I'm familiar with Jesus. I I appreciate his teachings. I've I've nearly got it all together. And Jesus is saying to those people, unless you truly receive me for who I really am, there will be no salvation and forgiveness for you. Maybe you see, some, maybe you see Jesus as someone who just kind of completes your salvation, just kind of tops, tops up where you lack, just polishes the, the rough edges. Maybe you've never seen him as the one who provides your every bit of righteousness, the one who pays for your every sin. Hey, today that can change. Today can be the day of salvation. Believe on Jesus, trust in him. Recognize what these Nazarenes failed to recognize. They thought they were the insiders. They didn't realize that they were the poor that Jesus had come for. They were the blind that Jesus had come to give sight. They were the captives that needed to be set free. You see, their problem was twofold. They didn't recognize Jesus, but they also didn't see themselves for who they really were. They didn't realize their deep need of redemption. You see, their reaction was to sit somewhere in the middle. They're on the fence, aren't they? They're, they're pleased with the sermon, but they fail to see the Savior. It's fascinating, isn't it, that here at the very start of his ministry, we already see him doing what Simeon said he would do. Remember Simeon? He said that Jesus was appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. S- S- Simeon said he's, this, this person's going to be radically inclusive, and that's what you see in this, in this sermon, isn't it? The, the Gentiles will be welcomed in. He's radically inclusive, but he's also radically divisive. You, you must either crown him or crucify him. There's, there's no middle ground when it comes to who Jesus is. And the middle ground is exactly where the Nazarenes are trying to be. You see, Jesus, just like Simeon, he, he does what Simeon said he would do. He, he forces you to the extreme. He's not content with you being in the middle when it comes to who he is. He might let you stay there for a little while because he's patient. But eventually, he forces you to choose. He, 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 He puts you to the extreme. You must either crown him or crucify him. And he forces them to the extreme. And look at their response. It's not a crowning. It's a crucifixion. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. This polite, self-important, entitled church has quickly become a murderous mob. They drove Jesus out of town to throw him off a cliff. You see the, the foreshadowing here, like at the beginning, the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the end of his ministry involves death on a hill, involves murder on a hill. But Jesus says, not yet. There's, there's, there's preaching to be done. There's proclamation to be done. I'm, I'm, I'm not ready for that yet. he will later say, hey, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. That's what he will do on the hill outside of Jerusalem. But here in Nazareth, it's not time for that yet. There's more work for him to do. You see, they they ask for a miracle, and they actually get one, but it's the most devastating miracle they could ask for. Verse 30, he passes through their midst, and he went away. I don't know how he did that, what that looked like, this He miraculously evaded this entire mob who were set to kill him, but he does, and he passes through their midst, and he went away. That might be the saddest, most devastating verse in the Bible. Because the Gospels, they don't record Jesus ever coming back to Nazareth. Friends, some rejections are final. Beware of being so familiar with Jesus that you miss out on who he is and on the opportunity of being his. It's a terrible warning, isn't it? But also, don't miss out on the incredible invitation. Like, the, the, the warning is terrible, but the invitation is just as lovely as the warning is terrible. Jesus says, if you, if you do accept me for who I really am, you'll receive freedom from your oppression. You'll receive liberty from your sin and from your guilt, from your shame. You'll receive true sight so that you're no longer fumbling through life. You'll receive acceptance into my family. Isn't the invitation to this passage just as lovely as the consequences are terrible of the warning? It's an invitation to, to see him for who he really is before it's too late and accept him and receive sight, freedom, liberty, debts canceled. is not amazing. Let's stand. And Father, we just thank you for your word. It is living and active, and it can just slice us open. It can cut us to the core. And um, so, Father, we thank you for um, a rebuke that might be needed. Lord, we just confess. We we often do um, try to exist in that middle ground. Familiar with Jesus. Accepting kind of some things about him, but it, it never really affects us. We never really, truly embrace you for who you are. Um, Lord forgive us for when we are lukewarm. But I pray that that, that rebuke would, uh, would lead to repentance. And um, Lord, thank you just for the, the picture of your kindness, Jesus. Your work is to to go to those who are poor, those who are blind, those who are oppressed, and and to proclaim good news to them. Help us to see the, the beauty of that invitation, the beauty of turning from our ways and coming to you, Jesus, truly embracing you for who you are. Lord, thank you for the invitation to be part of your family, to be called yours forever. Lord, may that good news um, just kind of burst in our souls today. maybe mean, be reminded, maybe for the, the first time, or maybe for the, the, the thousandth time, of the, the, the glory, the beauty of what you've invited us into. Father, I just pray that that would take root in our lives, that our, our number one goal would be to know you in Christ. To, to leave behind our old ways and to, to cling to Jesus, to stumble our way forward. I Thank you again, Lord, for your patience when we do get it wrong. Um, thank you for the cross that we can come to and proclaim liberty in our failure. No shame in Christ Jesus. Um, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that, that do feel like failures that do feel like, oh, I have been completely lukewarm. Lord, may we see the glory of the truth in your cross. And we come to you again, Jesus, for acceptance, for forgiveness, for love. May that change us from the inside out, Lord. pray these things in your name. Amen.